Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word from Romans 8 and verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord coming from the inspired and inerrant scriptures that God has written, even as a love letter to you and me. And here is our verse for today. From Romans 8, 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. There's a story about a new pastor who had arrived at a church and those first Sundays he was going around to different uh, ministries within the church and and uh, one morning he decided to visit one of the children's Sunday school classes and the teacher introduced the new pastor to the kids. This is our new pastor. And then she informed the pastor, uh, Pastor, we are studying in the book of Joshua. And the pastor said, oh, that's exciting. That's one of my favorite books. And he said, let's see what you guys are learning. Kids, tell me, who tore down the walls of Jericho? There was silence. The kids started looking out of the side of their eyes. They were, some of them were looking down. The pastor was a little perplexed. He said, who tore down the walls of Jericho, kids? Come on, you can tell me. Finally, one of the little kids, Johnny, raised his hand. He said, Pastor, I didn't tear down the walls of Jericho. The pastor was shocked at this kid's answer. And he's like, uh, he looks at the teacher and he, and he looks at her perplexed. Who tore down the walls of Jericho? The teacher looks at him and says, now, Pastor, Johnny's a good kid. I can tell you, he's telling the truth. He didn't tear down the walls of Jericho. The pastor was further perplexed. He walked out. He didn't know what to do. So he went to the DNL director, Discipleship and Life director, and he said to him, you realize, he tells him a story. This is what just happened. Who tore down the walls of Jericho? And DNL director said, you know that Johnny, he gives us a hard time once in a while. I'll go talk to him, and we'll have a talk about him doing this. The pastor was still blown away by it. So he goes to the elder board and he says, guys, listen to the story. I just simply asked who tore down the walls of Jericho. And finally, one of the elders raised his hand and said, look, pastor, I make a motion. I make a motion that we take money out of the general fund and pay for the wall that Johnny broke down. Guilt. It's something that all of us here wrestle with. It's something I deeply wrestle with. And like Johnny and the teacher and the whole church, sometimes we're presented with questions in life. We respond with the typical response of a human being in a broken world, guilt. Sometimes that's real guilt. Sometimes it's false guilt. But nonetheless, many of us walk around with this load of guilt in our souls, wondering where we really are in our status with God and before the truth of his word. Today, we want to talk about that from this text here in Romans chapter 8. 
Many of us walk around with the assumption that we have done enough, even in our Christian lives, that there's no way God would want to relate to us. But that does beg the question, doesn't it? Is that true? How should we understand our status before God even when, as followers of Jesus Christ, we struggle with sin, just as Paul talks about, even in Romans. Another way to say this would be, what is the implication of all that Christ has done for us on the cross right now, right here? Romans 8.1 is the, one of the most clear texts to tell us what God thinks of us right now and right here, even our status with him. In fact, if you look at the very words of the text, it starts out with the language of now when it says, there is therefore now. Paul highlights that little word now for two main reasons. Paul highlights it because something has changed in the way God deals with us in history. And then second, something has changed with us. First, the now means that something has changed in how God deals with men in history. That is, the change began when Jesus came into our world 2,000 years ago. You know the story. You've heard it. We as Christians believe some profound things about Christ coming to our world. That God became a man. That instead of what the pagans got, gods do in our world today, where the pagan gods demand that you go up to them, our God is different. He comes to us and dwells among us. The Christ who existed before the world began became a man as the Son of God. And when he came, he came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come for together people. He knew what he was getting into. When he came to be among us, he knew who he'd be hanging out with. And I can tell you, when you look at the disciples and some of the people Jesus hung out with, it wasn't a pretty picture. Not only that, the gospel tells us in Hebrews, among other places, that Jesus Christ lived a perfectly holy life that we could never get right in this life ourselves. His life and righteousness lived up to God's law perfectly 100% of the time, every day of the week, 24 hours a day. And that righteousness, when you trust in Christ by faith, covers us, covers us before God so that God sees Christ's righteousness, not our unrighteousness. This is already an important point for the now of living in Christ. For those who struggle with sin... For those who try to do the right thing, but like Romans 7, find themselves doing what they don't want to do, don't forget that Christ's righteousness changed everything. It covers you always. Jesus got it right so that we could be counted righteous when he takes on our sin. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5.21 that was said earlier, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whenever by faith you trust in Christ alone, there's a great transfer that takes place where God takes our sin and puts it on Christ. But he also takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on us. 
We forget that point oh too often. And though we may sometimes think, oh, okay, I've been forgiven because of the cross, we're too busy working to try and get it right because in our souls we know we're still not right, even in our sanctification, even in our growth. As a result, we are called to this unique task of following Christ and resting in his righteousness. That brings us to the most powerful thing then that Christ has done for us and that affects us right now. And it's the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was a historic death for those who are doubters. Even Roman historians like Tacitus say that Jesus died on a cross at the hands of the Romans. And if you recall, the death on the cross was a brutal thing. It's probably one of the most brutal forms of of capital punishment and execution in all of history. It's where they would nail the wrists of a man to a cross and his feet together on the the, uh, vertical pole. And, And as the man hung on the cross, he would usually hang out like this. It was hard to breathe. Standing on a nail with searing pain. In order to breathe, he had to push up. That's what crucifixion was like. Normally, a man did not die of bleeding to death. He normally bled to death of asphyxiation. He couldn't breathe anymore. He ran out of energy to push up. We believe Jesus died the death of one of the worst kinds of criminals you could imagine in that time. So that we could have life. That Good Friday, a momentous thing happened for you and for me. When Jesus died on the cross, you must realize that court was in session in God's kingdom. God took our sins and put them on Christ. Every single thing you have done, the worst things you haven't told people in your thoughts or what you've done in secret, all that was put on Christ that day on the cross. Court was in session for God with Christ dying for us. And that's where something changed for us. It changed history, but it also changed us. And often we like to use the three P's. Of what changed that day for us. Christ took the P, the penalty of sin. In his greatness, we must be reminded that God is holy and we all deserve death in his face. But Christ took the curse of God and the eternal penalty of death and hell for our deliverance on himself. So that we could be forgiven for the worst things we've done. Second P is the power of sin. In Romans 6 and 7, Paul talks about at length how hard it is to wrestle with sin in our lives and wrestle with the bonds of sin. But that's the glory of it is when Christ died, he took away the bondage of sin so you and I could say no to sin and yes to God to a new way of life. He freed us from the chains of sin. Third P, Christ prepares us so one day we will no longer be in the presence of sin. The cross ensures that we go to heaven, 
That that is our destiny with God in eternity, in his place, worshiping him and honoring him as we were created to do. In other words, the cross sets us on a trajectory, an eternal trajectory, with God into eternity in his heaven. And guess what, guys? This applies right now. Today. Here. So that's why this is so important for us. There is therefore now a huge effect of the cross in our lives that we so easily forget. Paul's not done. He not only says there is therefore now, he says there is therefore now no condemnation. Of course, when Paul talks about condemnation, he means the condemnation before God that all of us deserve in our sin. But instead, he's not, he tells us that something has changed. Now, by the way, this word for condemnation, it's a loaded term. It means passing judgment on guilt. It's alluding to God's courtroom. It is courtroom language where he pronounces eternal punishment. Doom. The old King, King Jimmy says damnation. We might say in our time, this does not end well at all in an eternal sense. That's what condemnation means. Now, if you've ever been to a courtroom, and I'll assume none of us here have been to a courtroom for, you know, car tickets or things like that. If you've ever been to a courtroom, in our culture, you walk in. And when you walk in, you see at the back of the room a bench. It's called the bench. It's this giant raised desk where the judge usually sits. And usually there's something called a bar separating the crowd or gallery from where all the proceedings of law take place with the judge and the defendants and the jury and the others. After a trial goes through its course, the jury comes up with a verdict. The judge is given the verdict and then he not only reviews it, he, he encourages the jury to speak the pronouncement. And then after that, the judge pronounces a sentence. This is what you get, X years in jail or this financial fine. That's called the sentence, the sanction that every courtroom gives in the case of guilt. Condemnation is the sentence and sanction that God, the consequence that God pronounces on those who do not know him and follow his Christ. Paul is invoking this powerful language in sentence language. And he's saying it because he knows that everyone alive who's ever been born will ultimately stand in the judge room of God. And yes, let's be clear, even me. We all will stand in the courtroom of God and give an accounting of what we have done in this life in Christ or without Christ. All of us will face God or really Christ the judge at the end of time and final judgment. And here Paul is saying that condemnation is coming. Now, here's the interesting thing of what that's got to do with us now is all of us in our daily living have these moments in our conscience, the courtroom of today, 
where we feel that condemnation at points in our walk. In fact, in our conscience, we feel guilt and shame about things said to loved ones, about things done, what we know wasn't supposed to be done, or not done, and we knew it was supposed to be done. We all have this sense of guilt, even shame, that not only are we broken, but God sees it. Maybe even others see it in our shame. Paul knows our consciences struggle with this sense of condemnation on a very regular basis. He knows that we blow it with God and we don't know what to do with blowing it with God sometimes. So what does he say? He says there is no condemnation. What does this mean? For us now, if condemnation in a biblical sense is God the judge sentencing someone to eternal judgment, he's saying you won't have that eternal judgment. No condemnation. According to Scripture, the Christian is free and clear in the courtroom of God justified which is the opposite of condemnation, when we trust in Christ for our salvation. There is no condemnation from God because Christ has paid the penalty for us once and for all. When he says no condemnation, he is saying, look, it is never about your works, even as a Christian, regarding your eternal destiny, Works, when you read it in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 3 or Revelation 14, for the Christian is all about rewards. What goodies we get far beyond eternal life with Christ as we trust in Him. In other words, when God says there is therefore now no condemnation for you and me when we follow Christ... He isn't going back on his word. Let me put it this way. God doesn't change his mind about you and me because you and I had a bad day of sin. And you know what? That's because he didn't change his mind about you and me when we had a pretty good spiritual day serving him. You realize that? It is a perception too many times of us as Christians that our righteousness is what keeps God loving us. But the truth of the matter is God's love for you never changes. We tend to think, in other words, like pagans. Pagans who think, if I have a bad day spiritually, I'm out with God. If I have a good day spiritually, I'm back in with God. That's pagan thinking. Christianity says the work of Christ is final force, and when you rest by faith in that work of Christ, there is therefore now no final eternal condemnation because of what Christ has done for you and me on the cross. That brings us to the next question. How is this possible with us and with God? Because some of you are thinking, but you don't understand. Even as a Christian, I've really done some really bad things. I mean, I've treated people badly, and I look back on it, and I just have total regret, 
and I wonder, would God even include me anymore in his kingdom because of this? Well, I'd say, welcome to Romans 7. Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, and that which I hate, I do. Here's how there is no condemnation. When Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, his, his death was an atonement. It, it is where he wiped us clean of our sin. At the cross, Christ redeemed us. That's marketplace language that our church gets its name from, where Christ buys us out of, uh, out of slavery and makes us free. He pays the debt we owe to God so we can be free in him. At the cross, Jesus sacrificially took on the rage, rather the wrath of God. And that's called propitiation for you theologians. Jesus took all the anger of God at our sin on himself so that he went through hell for us there on the cross. And finally at the cross, Christ covered. He took away expiated our sin as far as the east is from the west. Now, the results of this are profound. We are justified in Christ. Remember justification, what that means? Just as if I'd never sinned and lived a holy life. That's what justification means. God the judge declares us not guilty. When we say, I rest on Christ and not myself anymore. He says, you are pardoned. Not only are we pardoned, he also says we're reconciled in our relationship with him. So what does that mean? That means where we once were enemies with God, now we enjoy being friends. We can actually engage God on a personal level in a living relationship by faith. Let me put it this way. Because of Christ's work for you, received by faith, you are forgiven in Christ once and for all, for all time. You will never be condemned. Never if you trust in Christ for your salvation. This is a hard thing to believe, is it not? In the daily rhythms of life, the cross gets smaller and smaller as we deal with our own sin, as we even get self-righteous. So we can understand why Paul would be talking about this. It's basic Christianity, but it really gets at three things for us. Three G's, if you will. Guilt, God, and our gain. Let's think about that together. First, our guilt. When Christians struggle with sin, we feel the guilt. And by the way, as we talked about last week with the cross chart, the sonship cross chart, as we get older in Christ, you're going to feel more guilt. Isn't that exciting? You're going to feel guilt about things you didn't feel guilt about 10 years ago. You're going to feel guilt about things you didn't think about 20 years ago when you became a Christian, in some cases, you're going to feel that guilt. And that guilt is what God uses in our conscience to direct us to him. 
he sometimes brings shame on us too. Shame's that feeling of being caught like I'm being seen right now. If you've ever really dealt with your sin on a real level, even a dark thing and multiple people know and they know you and they know what you're struggling with, you have this sense of they can see me. Well, in as much as they can see you, God sees us much more. And that shame exists. Paul is saying we need to get clear on our guilt. And why do I say that? Because in our age, we have new rules, new moralities, even older moralities that are religious but aren't Christianity. You know I joke about don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with women to do. Those are the old religious rules. And when we break them, we feel guilty. But that's a false guilt. That's not true guilt. True guilt is based on what God's Word says. True shame is based on what God's Word says. How many times when you feel guilty do you think this is born out of God's Word of truth, not what I am experiencing in the cultural's idea of truth? Our job as Christians is to go to God's Word and to live out of the truth of that about what is true guilt, not false guilt. Second, when we're dealing with condemnation or rather no condemnation in our lives, we will find that our God issues come up. Many of us here have no idea what to do with our guilt because we believe God has an eternal frown on us. We think that God gets sick and tired of us and is basically done with us. And you know why we feel that sometimes? Because that's what we feel about people who do us wrong. No condemnation reminds us that God is radically different in how he deals with us. He is not like us. His love is patient. He is steadfast and faithful. He does not stop loving you even when our love falters and is capricious and fickle. God does not stop loving you and me even when we're struggling with sin and don't know how to get out of it. I remember years back, one of my kids and I were having a conversation and I had perceived that they might have done something that was not good in terms of, of uh, telling the truth versus a lie. And I asked them, did you tell me the truth? And they said, yeah, I told you the truth. So we went on our merry way and I bet it was five or ten, ten minutes later, that child came running back to me full force saying, Daddy, I can't tell you a lie. I really did. I did tell you a lie. I can't. I don't want to do that. I got to tell you the truth. I feel terrible. Now, I got to tell you. When my child did that, did I look down at them and say, you little sniveling nothing? How dare you? No. You know what I did? I said, you told the truth. Come here, son. That's awesome. Come here, daughter. That's great. Don't you see? God is not looking down on you right now, angry at you. Now, some of you say, wait a minute now. Scripture says God gets displeased. He even gets angry at his people. And you know what? You're exactly right. It's throughout the Old Testament how God handles Israel and Judah. It's even in Hebrews 12 where it talks about how God disciplines his children. And it can be tough sometimes. But don't you understand? It's not angry discipline. 
It's loving discipline. It's measured discipline. It is compassionate discipline to redeem and redirect. We think God is done with us when God is just getting started with us. Today, I want to encourage you that no condemnation means God is not about the beatdown. God is not about lecturing us when we blow it with him. As Romans 7 so readily says, God loves us. And that brings us to our final G of gain. When we blow it as Christians, when our conscience is stricken, remember that Christ is absolutely committed to redeeming us. He is way more committed to you than me. He is way more committed to you than you are committed to him. No condemnation means that he is going to be there. Our belief is, well, he'll be there until the next time I blow it. He'll be there if I keep being a good person. He'll be there as long as I, I well, if I don't bring up how I blew it, maybe he won't, he'll overlook that. No, nah, no. Nah. God wants you to come clean. In fact, I think this is the greatest error in the evangelical Reformed church today. In our attempts to be holy, we're seeking perfection that is of the world, not humility before the Lord by confessing our sin. When was the last time you said, I'm sorry to someone? I mean, really heartfelt, like, I did not handle that relationship well. Forgive me. I didn't handle it well. When was the last time when somebody said that to you, you said, I forgive you. I forgive you. If that conversation is not happening in your families, in your life, in your relationships, in this church, something's wrong. We're all feeling condemned. We need Christ to come to us and say, there's no condemnation. Come clean. You're free to come clean with your darkest fears. You see, God doesn't see you and me as an employee who's like, well, you're on a leash only so far and then I'm letting you go. Nah, we're his children. And he's fully engaged with you and me with a compassion and love that is infinitely greater than the compassion and love we offer our own children. It brings us to the last question from our text today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus... It tells us who this applies to for those who are in Christ Jesus. And who are those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, that in Christ Jesus, that's a loaded phrase in the New Testament. Wow. It's everywhere. In Paul in particular, it is a loaded sense. It is talking about the unique communion and connection you and I have spiritually with God by virtue of what Christ and his Holy Spirit has done through us and in us. God has connected us to him in a spiritual way in a living relationship by faith in Christ and resting on Him alone for our salvation. When you are united with Christ, you exhibit faith. Trust in Christ. Oh, it's a struggling trust. It's not perfect. You get it right some of the time and get it really wrong other parts of the time. But it's a trust nonetheless. Not only is it that trust, it also 
has not only the faith, rather, but also the fruit, the evidence of authentic connection with Christ is true fruit. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come as we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in Romans 8. But I'll give you examples of what that looks like. It was read earlier to us from from Blair in uh, John chapter 7. Jesus is teaching, and these religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus. We can only imagine she was probably half-clothed, and they said, we literally just caught this woman having an adulterous affair with a man. What do you say we should do with it? Because the law says we should stone her. And in just this amazing moment, Jesus kind of kneels down. Oh, let's see if I can do this. And he starts writing in the, in the sand with his finger. Ah, oh, the finger of God. That is a powerful image in Scripture talking about how God wrote his law. Now, some commentators say that when Jesus was writing in the sand, he was writing about the girlfriends of some of those religious leaders. I don't know that that's necessarily true. But I do know with Jesus writing with his finger, he is saying, look, I wrote the law. I interpret it. Let him who cast the first, uh, who is without sin cast the first stone. There's another case where Jesus not only says, uh, says this woman is forgiven, he even says to that woman, you are no longer condemned, even though everyone else does. There's one other case in Luke chapter 7 where this woman comes into Jesus in, in the middle of a Pharisee's house and starts crying and wiping his feet with her tears and her hair and is generous to him in amazing ways. And all the Pharisees and the religious folks are looking at her going, does he know what kind of woman that is? And Jesus asks an honest question of the leader of that household, the Pharisee, Simon, who would love a master more, one who is forgiven of a small debt or one who is forgiven of a large debt? And he says a large debt. And he said, that's exactly right. Receiving forgiveness is the way to love in big ways like that woman did. One of the hardest things in our life as Christians is actually being forgiven again. Receiving the grace of God yet again in our lives so that we don't feel condemned yet again. I asked you earlier, when's the last time you said I'm sorry or even said you're forgiven? Now let me ask the real question. When's the last time you felt like you've really been forgiven by God? That's what this text is getting at. If we are going to be a people who freely come clean with our sin, even offer forgiveness to others, the number one thing we need in no condemnation is to regularly go back to the cross and receive the forgiveness that Jesus provides. And oh, Sometimes it's hard to believe he'll give it yet again to us. Are you willing to believe there is no condemnation when you feel that tinge of guilt that might be real about something real you've done? It might be false because the culture is pressing you towards a certain standard that's not of God. Are you willing to say, Jesus, I need you to direct me and even forgive me I want to taste that in the power of the Spirit with you. In conclusion, 
part of the reason we're talking about this today is because I'm a guilty person. It's part of why I became a Christian 31 years ago. I carry guilt around like many of you do. And to this day, I still struggle with, did I do this wrong? Did I do that right? It's still in my soul. But you know what I keep doing as I did 31 years ago? When I first heard that I was forgiven, I go back to Christ and say, Jesus, will you love me again and forgive me again? That cross applies to this right now as I see it in my life. I need you. That's what Jesus is calling us to a life of, is coming back to him and hearing those precious words, child of God, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. None, ever, because of what Christ has done for you. Go back to him again as you received him in faith in the past. Go back to him by faith again and enjoy the gift of his forgiveness. It's a hard gift to receive. But it's the gift that is the one that frees us to life even now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, many of us here today are struggling with forgiveness. Both giving it away, enjoying it ourselves. We have been wounded. We have wounded And today we ask you, Lord Jesus, to open our hearts to our need and open our minds to how big you are and your love to enter into our little worlds with its guilt and shame and offer us peace. Offer us yet again another morsel of life and truth through Christ. I pray for all of us here at Redeemer that we would be a people who neither condemn one another, but also give grace and forgiveness. Make us a people who want it really bad and are honest about our need. It doesn't come easy, Lord. You know me. It doesn't come easy for me. Make us a people together, though, who long for the cross. In Christ's name.